Hey, it's Zoe. Just a quick one. In December, we walk our talk and I take some time off recording to be with my family and the girls and recharge before next year. So I've re-released for you the most popular episodes of the past six months. These were the episodes that you loved, you shared with your friends, you emailed me about, you DM'd me about, you told me helped you so, so, so much. So I am re-releasing them. Even if you've listened before, listen again, because I know when I re-listen to podcasts, I hear something different every time. So here it is. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This is the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more self-awareness, with more clarity and confidence. I am really proud to bring you this episode about ADHD. So many of our motherkind community are being diagnosed with ADHD, are wondering if they have ADHD, are really confused by it and maybe really curious about it. So I've known that I've wanted to do an episode for a really long time, but it's taken me a while to find the right expert. Enter Dr. Samantha Hugh. She is the perfect expert for motherkind. She is a mum of two. She was diagnosed with ADHD aged 40, just after the birth of her second child. Sam is also one of the leading voices on the UK on ADHD and women. She is the founder of the award-winning platform ADHD Girls. So when I spoke to Dr. Samantha, I really wanted to understand why is there this huge rise in women being diagnosed with ADHD? What are the characteristics of ADHD for women? Because it looks different than for men. And how does ADHD intersect with motherhood? Something that I think about all the time in my own life is, how do I know if this is neurodivergence? Is this ADHD or is this just the stress of the mental and the emotional load that we are carrying? And Dr. Sam's answer on that was absolutely clear. It was really helpful. That's about 20 minutes in if you want to skip and just listen to that part. I hope this episode is really supportive. I hope it's really educational and I hope that it gives you so much clarity. I know it did for me. Please, please, please do me a favor. Send this to other women in your life. There is so much misinformation out there. Let's spread more of this kind expert and compassionate content. So please do share this episode in your mum WhatsApp groups, in your school WhatsApp groups, send it to your friends, share it on Instagram. Let's get this incredible content out to more and more mothers that desperately need it. Here it is. This episode is sponsored by Coru Kids. After-school childcare can be so tricky, can't it? It's hard to find and usually means long days for little ones at school. Well, Coro Kids is changing that with flexible part-time nannies that can work just the hours you need. Their nannies are from a variety of backgrounds, students, artists and writers, but they all have one thing in common, which is a passion for working with children. Coro Kids take care of the vetting, references and employment checks. In fact, less than 5% of applicants actually go on to join the platform. And these nannies aren't fuddy-duddy, Mary Poppin types. They are the perfect solution to your busy family life. 
They let tired kids come home, eat a home-cooked meal, get homework done and enjoy activities and fun, bringing joy to their afternoons and calm to your evenings. We all need a bit of that, don't we? For a limited time, our listeners can trial a nanny for free. Yes, free. Worth over £50. Just head to corukids.co.uk. That's K-O-R-U kids.co.uk and use the code MOTHERKIND when you sign up to get your free three-hour trial. Oh, Samantha, I'm so excited to chat to you. I was just saying, I think this is going to be one of those episodes that is just going to help so many mothers out there. So let's start right at the start. How did you get your ADHD diagnosis? Yeah, so it was the pandemic. Everything just seemed a lot harder than, you know, it used to be. I had just had my second child, a son. I was getting the postnatal anxiety, you know, that I did. I also had the first time round, but because the gap between my two children were five years, so I didn't remember what it was like. So then, you know, I had two children now, five years difference, you know, age gap. And then it just felt like that much more overwhelming. You know, they say when you have another child on top of one, it's not just plus one child, it feels like plus five or plus 10 because everything just feels like, you know, how I'm going to juggle these balls. And then people were talking about, you know, ADHD. And these were professional women, you know, who I admire and look up to. And I never thought that this could happen to people who also have achieved in life because ADHD, the way it's been stigmatized so much over the decades or centuries is that it is a naughty white boy syndrome and you have difficulties staying in school and listening and paying attention. But I did all that, although with difficulty. So just having these role models of the women who kind of been through what I went through and actually did some of the work that I did, you know, and, and just made me question more and it planted a seed. And then it was not until another eight months or so that I finally got a diagnosis at the age of 40. But by then I had already like deep dive into it and talked to so many women, so many other women and created a <laughs> YouTube channel as a result and founded a company. So a lot has happened. And when you first looked at that criteria, because I know so many listeners will have, I know I have Googled that criteria. What does ADHD look like in a middle-aged woman? You said that you didn't tick all those boxes and you talk about the criteria being very biased. Tell us about that. So there is the pre-assessment rating scales, right, that you have to fill in the nine set of questions that tell your GP whether or not you can be referred to a specialist assessment. And so that set of questions are gender biased. I did it the first time, you know, it was like a, a set of questions and it was like a quiz. And I didn't really tick the serious boxes in those kind of questions. And so I questioned myself did I really have ADHD? You know, so many people I sent those things to, and then they don't always, you know, fulfill the criteria. But then I had to do it two or three times. And by then I felt like an imposter, <laughs> you know, like I was just trying to ace an exam. And then what, what it is, is like later on, I realized that you have to peel away all your coping strategies to really get to like, what were you like before you scramble around and look for ways to cope? So some of the questions that I found difficult to really comprehend was like, would you get up from a meeting if you feel like it, <laughs> right? I won't. <laughs> Even though I want to, I probably just cope by somehow shutting down inside. My eyes will glaze over. But I won't get up because socially it's not accepted to do that. 
and some of the questions are like, are you organized and do you find yourself being disorganized or overwhelmed? And and I think I tried so hard to cook for so long. I actually pride myself as being someone who was quite organized in my 30s and 20s. And then I hit 40, something just changed. I thought it was having a second child, but then it also it lingered on afterwards. Things just seemed more foggy. I was more tired. I mean, I was breastfeeding too. There's a lot of things happening in my life, but also generally my hormones weren't what they used to be, my sex hormones. You know, I wasn't the type of person who would get like more than a week PMS before my period, but then I started feeling it more, you know, throughout the month. And then like I was more fatigued. I was finding it, everything just that much more overwhelming. So then that made me question something was wrong with me. And yeah, you are right. So the assessment criteria, they are gender bias, but they're also culturally biased because the research is done on a very specific group of people. And these are well, white boys. They're not even men. <laughs> they just, you know, they were created from children because ADHD was known as a child condition for a really long time. It wasn't yeah, until the late 2000s that they thought that actually it could happen to adults as well. And then later on, like, oh, it could happen to girls and women. And now we're just opening up. You told the story of how you weren't relating to everything on the criteria. How did you then get the diagnosis? I spoke to a lot of other women who were also going through the same thing in terms of pursuing a diagnosis, understanding their lived experience stories. And also I got in touch with Michelle Beckett, who at the time, you know, was a very strong ADHD activist. And I had a coach, <laughs> an ADHD coach, who was also incredibly empowering. So I had a lot of people in my corner who made me think that, right, this is what I'm feeling. This is the traits that I've had. And this didn't just happen today. It had been an impairment throughout my life. So with that, I gained more confidence. And also, I had a girl who was going through the diagnosis at the same time, and she worked in the healthcare sector. And she gave me a set of questions. And I didn't realize those sets of questions were exactly what my psychiatrist asked me at the assessment. And I put it up in my blog now and on my website. And I felt like I kind of aced an exam, but also, you know, I think a lot of women tend to feel that when they come out of that assessment with the psychiatrist, they feel like they kind of did really well in the exam because they studied for it. And that's why the imposter syndrome came afterwards. But then they were genuine. It's really difficult going through those assessments because they'll ask you really personal, they dig deep, you know, into your childhood. And a lot of us kind of block out our childhood and they'll dig deep on the areas of your life that ADHD cause massive impairment. And so with that comes a lot of like trauma unearthed. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about that. I want to talk about the traits and the characteristics. And then I want to talk about support for people who might be going through that diagnosis process. Let's talk about traits and characteristics first. So what were some of the myths that you've uncovered around ADHD in women? And what are some of the unknown characteristics that you just had no idea were part of your ADHD? So some of the traits that I've unearthed that were myths. So there are so many. I mean, a lot of the bags of conditions, the bags of traits that they have listed on the NHS websites, they're quite gender biased. And I posted about this yesterday, like how women are thought to be inattentive, generally inattentive, like daydreamers. But, you know, we're just such like a mixed character of 
within the month itself, you know, because a lot of how we show up, the way we show up also depends on our moods, which is regulated by our menstrual cycle. You know, so I liken it to four seasons of the month, you know, the spring, summer, autumn and winter. You know, some parts of the month we're more sprightly, some parts we are less. And some parts because of the impact of estrogen on dopamine, which is reduced in the ADHD brain, we get all the impairments that come with that, you know, maybe more more impulsive, more daydreaming, you know, and having more kind of a cognitive overload around those time. So we're not generally inattentive. We internalize the hyperactivity a lot more effectively than boys early in life. But then as adults, boys and girls, they grow up to internalize hyperactivity. So it becomes this restlessness of the mind. And it causes anxiety and depression. And yeah, a lot of the traits in women that later found out. So the hyperactivity can be manifested as being hypertalkative, hypersocial, hyperreactive. You know, there's all these different types of ways we could show our hyperactivity. So I don't fully agree with the ADD diagnosis and it doesn't really exist anymore. And the type of diagnosis you get really very much depend on the healthcare practitioner that you are seeing, how much they know, how hard they're able to make sense of what you're going through. I just wanted to pick on a point that I think is absolutely fascinating is that when you say we internalize that hyperactivity, that can start to look like overthinking, ruminating, an incredibly busy mind. I think that's really, really fascinating. So the second part of the question was, what were some of the surprising characteristics of ADHD that you just don't think are talked about enough, particularly in women? I think one of the biggest takeaways that I have learned is that neurodivergence rarely travel alone. We will be an adhd but that rarely is the only thing that we are struggling with or is not the only thing that's different about us because there's a really high co-occurrence between ADHD and autism. So then when I was diagnosed with ADHD, you know, I was kind of like, oh no, I'm not autistic, you know, because you know, in your mind, <laughs> there is an image, you know, of what being autistic looked like. But then it is not all the same because it exists in a spectrum. And what I thought was ADHD, you know, because I'm blurting out things in the midst of conversation when someone's talking or actually just not knowing social cues and social hierarchy. I never like people kind of lording over me and I always like autonomy. I don't really like micromanagers and I don't really see people according to the roles they are. But then in the corporate world, it's so this is my boss, you know, this is like the senior, whoever. I'm like, I never really see people like that. And then also don't act accordingly, you know, because I treat everyone the same. And I've been told off for that, you know, like I'm not showing respect to somebody because they've actually been there for 15 years. Whereas I just turn up and, you know, tell everyone what they could do better. So these is the social communication differences that I never knew was part of me that was, you know, the reason I didn't fully understand how to navigate around a big female friendship group. You know, I could do one-to-one, I could do like, you know, maybe at most three or four, <laughs> but then anything more than that becomes really overwhelming for me. And so, yeah, the social anxiety element is something that I struggled with and it became a bit worse after I started my ADHD medication too. So yeah, there are so many little discoveries that come along the way. And I've heard you talk about perfectionism and ADHD as well. Tell us about that. So 
I was really interested in the high achievers, you know, the intersections of people who have achieved in life at a cost. It always comes at a cost, you know, mental health, many breakdown of relationships. I don't believe that we think of ourselves as a perfectionist. We just think of ourselves as having done a job to the level that we're happy with. It looks different for everyone, but some people are so concerned about coming across like they have everything covered and controlled that it can be really hard to achieve, even for themselves. And that's when the old perfectionist can cause a crash and a burnout afterwards because we try so hard. Like There are different archetypes that we assume and become because of our beginnings and our ways through education and employment. And these archetypes are like we'll melt down, shut down, double down, and class clown. You know, so meltdown is when you have so much going on in your head and your environment is too much. It can be externalized as rage, you break down, or you shout at people, or aggression. Like some women, when they were girls, they hit this really well, but some girls don't, you know, because there's some volatility from being not just an ADHD or but maybe you live in a place where you have to stick up for yourself. But then the shutdown is when you internalize things and trying to just like regulate internally because the environment is too much for you. You know, the best place for me is to put on my noise cancellation headphones, being in a salt lamp in a dark room when I feel like it's too much. And sometimes people, when they're in a social situation, they can just be quiet because they can't actually say anything or they're too overstimulated. And then double down is what is relevant to your question. It's when we double down on our effort in order to give people the result that we think they need, they expect of us. And this can be a problem when we go into the workplace because I was talking about this yesterday, about how the expectations are so unclear. A lot of time people don't even know what they want you to do. <laughs> they just want to see the result. And when you go into the workplace and not knowing what to expect can cause so much anxiety. And then we don't want to disappoint. We want to like just give them the result. And actually it's a lot to do with self-esteem as well, because we think if we do a good job, then people would appreciate us and then we'll feel better for ourselves. So a lot of these have got a root in our beginnings and how we tied our self-esteem to achieving and doing a good job. And over time, it can lead to a lot of mental health challenges. When we try too hard as well, and we keep this up for a long time, our body suffers because our burnout, you know, it's something that isn't just happening in the mind. It's like every cell in your body feels exhausted and your nerve endings just feel fried. And that explains why I had to leave my job every year and a half to two years just to go on holiday and really look forward to that holiday because I was just so totally burned out from trying so hard that, you know, I felt responsible as well. Why would I leave this job when it's actually a really good job and people want it? But my body said no. I see that in so many neurodivergent women. Some of us don't follow a linear career path. You know, we have this squiggly career and that's me, and that's a lot of ADHDers I know too. Well, you talked about the two Bs, didn't you, in the workplace, boredom and burnout. And I've seen that as well, just that pattern that I think, did you say you had 16 different industries? Yeah, to calculate it. Oh, yeah, I started when, like, a lot younger, obviously, even before I finished my studies. It was just me trying to figure out where in the world of work I fitted into. Because, you know, I could do the education, I could ace the exams finished my PhD with a lot of difficulty because it was a lot of independent work. But then when I came out 
it wasn't the same anymore. Someone was saying to me, you'll see, because the world of work is not the same as being in university. And I was like, what? Like, but I've been a postgraduate researcher for five years. You know, I work independently. I work in a group, but no, it's not the same. When you come into the world of work, you got to pick one thing, apparently. And that one thing was really hard to find because I want to do so many things. I relate to that. What is fascinating to me is how many mothers, predominantly I'm seeing it with young-ish families, sort of maybe pre-teen kids are being diagnosed at the moment. Am I right in that that feels like an explosion of women and mothers in particular getting diagnosed? Why do you think that is? Well, I suppose these mothers, I'm just maybe presuming here, because the reason that they didn't know that they have ADHD themselves for so long is because society was catching up with our understanding. But then because we're seeing more children being diagnosed with a neurodevelopmental condition, because they are struggling through transition. You know, in this transition, if you're saying preteen, you know, there's a hormonal kind of transition there when they go into puberty, but also going from primary to secondary school. And once they get in there, it's a whole different ballgame, isn't it, from primary to secondary. And they struggle <laughs> to do the things that they are expected to be independent to do, you know, because the brain development of a child with ADHD is three to five years delayed, you know, compared to their peers without ADHD. So it's not just the whole part of the brain, it's the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that regulates the executive functioning. This is your brain control center that does the day-to-day things like organizing, delegating, and time management. Time blindness is it's a problem for children and adults with ADHD. And so the mother's are quite overwhelmed, you know, having to support their children. And then their children goes for the assessment, if they're lucky enough to go through the assessment, because a lot of the children gets actually turned away if their cases aren't serious enough. But when they do go to the assessment, they'll notice that a lot of the traits, you know, you'll be interviewed as well as a parent. And you will see what were the traits, you know, that they use to assess your child. And so these traits, you will recognize them in yourself. A lot of women say that to me. But also, yeah, that's when the penny drops. I think some of the adults, the mothers who've been diagnosed with ADHD, they tell me that psychiatrists tell them the apple don't fall far from the tree. You know, and ADHD is genetically inherited. It's through the bloodline. You don't get it out of thin air. So, you know, that's when it starts to connect. But also, like I've said before, ADHD in women doesn't look completely the same as ADHD in men or boys. Just on that point, so ADHD is genetically inherited. What role does generational and societal trauma play in that? Can you have a predisposition to ADHD but not develop it if you don't go through particular traumas? How does that work? I believe that. I see a cross-section of women who have differences in the spectrum in which they show their ADHD traits. And you are right, genes load the gun. It's the environment that pulls the trigger. And the reason for that is because we are passing down, you know, a host of genes, not just one or two that they've identified. There are a lot of like the dopamine re reuptake receptor genes and also the anti-inflammatory genes, you know, because like, you see a lot of inflammatory markers that get passed down. And Gabo Mate talks about the origin of this, which is stress and trauma, which marks our genes and you know, it can be passed down to family generations. So 
epigenetics can mark your gene and get retained in your bloodline for two generations. And I think that's why we can express some of the challenges that maybe our grandmothers were going through. It's not like anyone's done the two-generation study, but we're pulling together different interconnected threads, you know, about genes, epigenetics, our environment, and trauma. Trauma is anything that happens to us where we have a moment of our understanding what's going on and these regulations going on within us. You know, it can be small T or big T, small traumas, big trauma, CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. There are things that are happening in families due to undiagnosed neurodivergence. There's a lot of things that will be answered by people's propensity to look for dopamine hits and self-medicating. And this comes in various ways, like whether it's like starting businesses, you know, and, and stopping businesses when you don't feel the passion or the thrill anymore. It's a lot of thrill seeking, exploration, and alcohol. It's destroyed families, drugs, and affairs. You know, these are things that, you know, they aren't a good way to look for that dopamine hit, but people do not really know better when they don't understand themselves. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. And it gives so much compassion and understanding, doesn't it? That I think as a society, we just don't have. And it makes sense to me, you know, that so many mothers like you, actually, you know, just welcoming in your second baby would start to question this. Because if we talk about environment, surely there's not a time in a woman's life when she's more exhausted, the mental and emotional load is higher. You know, particularly if we think about pandemic and I know that was your experience but now in a post-pandemic world still I think trying to figure out and get our feet back from that awful lockdown and homeschooling it makes sense to me that given that environment so many mothers would start to question if they are neurodiverse is that what you see as well absolutely you know I talk a lot about how fulfilling gender roles in society has caused us the overwhelm and therefore we manifest our ADHD in the way that we do. A lot of it is emotional dysregulation. You know, and so many of us ADHDers are also autistic. And when we get to a certain age, there is one thing that gets compounded and that's sensory processing disorder because we get more sensory overwhelmed the older we get, you know, because everything is connected. Nothing exists in isolation because ADHD is impacted by hormones and autism as well. But then when we get to a certain age, when we get perimenopausal, lack of certain nutrients in our body can cause sensory challenges. Like I know that now, you know, things can become that much brighter, that much louder, and we don't want to be touched as much as we did before. And that becomes a problem when you have small children climbing all over you. You know, that can be hard. Thanks to this week's sponsor, AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. AG1 provides support in five crucial areas of health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging, basically all the things. There's loads that I love about my AG1, but I really love how simple it is. It's just one scoop, once a day, every day. It's not another complicated thing I have to add to my mental load. I think it's one of the simplest ways that I look after myself. And as I mix it up, I consciously say to myself my mantra, I am worth looking after. So we know how busy you are. And so this is self-care that's quick, 
and easy. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash motherkind. That's drinkag1.com forward slash motherkind. I think with that sensory processing, that's something that I relate to. And I think it's something that I see a lot is just mothers saying, every mother actually that I know has said, I just want to lie down in a dark room. Something that I'm so curious about is how does someone listening to this thinking, well, I completely relate to a lot of the characteristics that Sam's talked about. How does someone know whether it's just the intensity of motherhood, of fast-paced modern life, of the mental load? Like, I am crazy forgetful, but I think that's because I don't actually think I have ADHD. I think it's because my mental load is just so high, the things that I'm holding on to. So I walk into a room and I forget why I'm there. I forget, but I don't think that's a neurodivergence in my brain. I don't think my brain is wired differently. I think it's just how much I'm holding. So how does someone differentiate between being neurodivergent and just being an overwhelmed mum? You know, the crazy way that we mother today. You're completely right. <laughs> being overwhelmed as a mother and reaching a certain age can look a lot like neurodivergence, you know, and ADHD. But in order for you to be diagnosed with ADHD, the impairments would have had to exist before the age of 12. So you would have to have always felt like you're different. And a lot of us who are wouldn't know that because we never fitted in, you know, and we knew that we had to try that much harder to try and look like other people, <laughs> you know, and a lot of us call this masking or coping. That is something that you're always aware, you know, especially when you're autistic, like you look at the world through systems, you don't just look at it like any other people. You start to talk a bit like a philosopher sometimes, you know, but that's a very specific type of autistic person. So yeah, it has to exist before the age of 12. And these impairments have had to happen to all areas of your life, your work, your relationships, your studies. Suppose now, yeah, so they look for symptoms of impulsivity, hyperactivity, and ADHD. <laughs> Sometimes my brain doesn't click. It's like, you know, hello, <laughs> you know, are you there? But yeah, there are a lot of criteria, you know, that people look at, but then to get to them, you need a psychiatrist who understands and asks the right questions. So there are more than just the three traits, you know, hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive. There are also emotional dysregulation that women would know if you have it, because it's literally, you go from zero to a hundred. Your emotional flooding happens in an instant. And then, you know, maybe within 10, 15 minutes, you go back to normal and act like, what, what do you mean? Like, you don't remember having that intensity. It's not that you don't remember. You just don't remember how you got there and come out of it. It's very fast. And what's one thing I love as well about ADHD is not all negative. And I agonize over how to reframe everything because I've had a lot of good experiences in my life. And it's not just all doom and gloom. A lot of it was, you know, when I love, you know, something I do, if I love someone, I have a really good time understanding all about the subject and the person. I've had this social justice element that a lot of ADHDers also have where you need an emotional purpose to what you do and you need to make a difference through that the mind-wandering element that people tend to talk about ADHD also is coinciding with the seed of your imagination where you know spontaneous thoughts can pop in your brain at any one time especially when someone is talking you're thinking about something else when they don't hold your attention 
But these gives rise to creativity, you know, thoughts that what ADHDers are known as, just ideas machine. We churn out ideas like nothing else. It's uh, just if uh, you need the executors to bring your ideas far. But yeah, there are a lot of little traits, you know, that make up ADHD and it's not all bad. Yeah. One of these traits that I saw you talk about, which I just think is incredible, is that if you have ADHD, you tend to feel first, you tend to experience the world for your feeling self. Tell us about that, because to me, that sounds like a superpower. Well, in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So as a neurodivergence, I mean, ADHD and autism, we feel the world first before we think about where we are. That's because our brain has a stronger bottom-up signaling than top-down. And the bottom-up is from the sensory inputs that your brain is receiving from the environment. So it's what you see, feel, and hear. We also have really sharp instincts because of that. But because these feelings are so strong, sometimes it can cloud our judgment. And because the top-down signaling isn't as strong, the challenge is, so how do you make sense of these feelings that you get? It's like, you know, when you meet someone, you think there's something either right or not right about them. And you want to trust those instincts. But then because of that signaling being not as strong, we can't rationalize it. So then we second guess ourselves. We go around in circles. <laughs> and that's why being medicated later in life was like quite a revealing experience. And I know that some of us have gotten that clarity anyway through self-medicating, whether it's through coffee or various other things and vices. So those moments of clarity do come to us. But it's an interesting, interesting way of being. Tell me about medication. You touched on it there. Are you an advocate for women diagnosed later in life starting medication? Tell us about that. So the thing is, there are risks and benefits to taking medication. And I had to take it because I'm perimenopausal. The impacts on my ADHD is not just on me, it's on my family because I get more sensory challenges, I get more overwhelmed, having two plus 10 children. <laughs> so it is a lot easier for me to start on this medication that has been known to help perimenopausal and menopausal women. And this medication especially has been shown to be quite effective for us. And I would say that these medications are only working on increasing the levels of dopamine and norepinephrine you know, in your brain, it does the thing that estrogen is meant to be doing for me. But, you know, my estrogen levels isn't what it is some parts of the month. And so I'm relying on this medication to do the job because the sex hormones, the estrogen carries the dopamine from the central part of the brain to the front. And so when we have lesser estrogen, you know, we have like more cognitive issues with thinking and you know that's why a lot of women who are menopausal they say that they feel like they have alzheimer's because all of a sudden you don't actually remember you know a lot of things and your brain isn't as sharp as it used to be but it catches you in moments so they tell me that perimenopausal is hard but being menopausal is even worse so you know there are ways to help you and medication is not the only thing but because you know what hrt is like what the hormonal health research is like and especially there's not enough awareness on how hormones impact a woman with adhd and autism so medication is like almost like the easy option right now the adhd medication but i've heard women who go on hrt and found it work for them they don't even need 
medication. So they've stayed, they've dropped it. And some people have various ways of coping. You know, the mainstream medicine way is that they, they prescribe you with contraceptive pills to level out your hormones. So ADHD medication is great, but those pills don't make the skills for you. And there are side effects as well that you need to look out for. And you need to manage that medication because taking those medications can land you into hyperfocus and you can forget to eat, forget to drink. And that causes issues as well, you know, on your brain and your body. You said pills don't make the skills. I love that. What are some of the other skills that help someone with ADHD or autism? I suppose the skills are like to how do you live your life in a way where you're not just looking at being a more productive person, but also being a healthy, happy person. There's so many areas that we need to look at to make sure that happens. A big part of it is really understanding ourselves. You will be going through this grief cycle where you mourn the lost years and then hope that things will be better. And then the first 12 to 24 months of a woman's life upon diagnosis is really telling because they could use this time to actually go all out to get the thing that they felt that they never had when they didn't understand the way their brain works. And so knowing this, it can be quite a crucial time to put in even more support because so many of us end up, you know, starting medication, overworking, getting burnout, and then, you know, having more issues. So yeah, I live to tell the tale. I went through all of that. What was that diagnosis like? And what was that grieving period like? I imagine you're trawling through just your whole point up until that moment, putting a new lens on everything. Was that your experience? Yeah. I mean, for me, it definitely was because I went all in to figure things out. I, 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 I that's, that's just me. I just trying to figure out why I'm the way that I am and why this is all tied together. And my, my talks is all about trying to explain to people the behavior that you see, there's always a root cause in it. So it was very challenging. And also I'm telling my trauma in public as well. And over time, I just learned to not say the things that I'm not comfortable with, though the oversharing still gets in the way. But yeah, it's definitely hard, but we can't do it alone as well because a lot of us end up joining communities. I think women are better at that, but a lot of men struggle along on their own. And actually the amount of people would say to me, why is it just ADHD girls? Why not ADHD boys or, you know, ADHD, something else? People want a group like that. They just don't know where. And I think there's so many communities popping up now. You know, people actually want more circles where they can talk more intimately. And so, yeah, back to the point of the pills don't make skills. One of the skills that you could develop is self-understanding. And you do this through speaking to a therapist who gets you and to help you make sense of things because a lot of us can end up chasing ourselves in circles and if you talk to somebody and they make sense of your life to you they help to make sense of your past traumas or your experiences that cause you a lot of grief and process that but also not just talk about it and re-traumatize yourself because that's what i found too you know through learning the hard way re-traumatizing myself and then asking my therapist hang on what do i do when i feel dysregulated talking about that really difficult thing that happened to me and it didn't occur to me to ask her in the first instant. She didn't even tell me. But yeah, I learned later on that actually we need to process those feelings from bottom up, from somatically, from what we feel, you know, in order to truly heal and get over things. Otherwise, you just keep talking about it and then it doesn't get better. That's a big one. They prescribe CBT. 
cognitive behavioral therapy on the NHS. And nearly everyone I know don't really agree with that, don't find it helpful. It's really helpful for people who are really good at listening to other people, but I'm not very good. I tend to be very autonomous. So there is acceptance and commitment therapy that helps. You know, the ADHD brain is actually just wired for us for self-acceptance and self-compassion. So that's really great. But there are so many things more like lifestyle and nutrition, you know, that we need to look at. And I'll be covering this in a workshop that I do on the 24th of May. Yeah, this is going to be about how you look at the different areas of your life, different parts of the month for women, because you could eat the foods that help you at different phases of your menstrual cycle. And being aware of what you need as well when you wake up early in the morning, you know, what kind of days you want to construct for yourself and your family. Because I know we're trying to juggle so much, our mental load is so much, you know. It's hard. It's really hard. And if someone is listening, thinking, well, actually, I'm going to speak to two listeners. If the first listener is thinking, I have related to a lot of the characteristics that Sam has been talking about. And that might be bringing up lots of feelings, might be bringing up curiosity, fear, anxiety. What would someone do when they finish this episode? What can someone do next? Well, deep breathing. (laughs) I just want to tell you, like, I hope I'm not bringing anything up. But yeah, that's the fact of me talking about things is that people say, oh, yeah, but that's me too. Just kind of like deep breaths, inhale and exhale. And just kind of get curious, I suppose, you know, try and like read more and re-educate yourself because you are the world's biggest expert on you. And there is a chance that every single psychiatrist you go to will not know that much about you. And you would probably have to do a lot of the steering yourself, you know, if you were to look for a diagnosis. And some people don't feel like they need a diagnosis and just knowing is enough because some people have constructed a life that actually truly works for their brain differences. I speak to hundreds of people in the audience and some of those people, they say to me, do I need ADHD medication? Do I need a diagnosis? What does it do? And they have created this lifestyle where they work in nature. You know, they do breath work. They work as a breath work practitioner. They do yoga and meditation classes, you know, and they teach them. They have somehow found the thing that they needed to heal themselves. And so when you're in that environment, then you probably don't need a diagnosis or medication. You probably just need to self-validate. I suppose self-identification is also valid. Let's think about another listener who might be listening who is diagnosed ADHD and is really struggling. What would you say to that mother? Well, I would say like, don't struggle alone. I was there because there wasn't anywhere I could go that was free (laughs) because I didn't feel like I want to pay like a subscription fee to somebody when I didn't even know how long I will use it. So then I created a community where people can go to and just rely on each other, you know, share your stories, compare notes. This is a WhatsApp community. A lot of women are in it. I think it's over 200 and to find out how to organize this better. But yeah, this is a place that at least you know that there are other people like you and they have gone through something similar and actually validates you as well when you go through those challenges. So yeah, don't struggle alone because struggling alone can sometimes lead us to thinking that it's totally helpless. And it's a cry for help, isn't it? When you do think that there's nobody who gets me, I'm all alone, but you're not. There's so many people. Like these events that I speak at, they're like literally hundreds. I tell them to look around the room. You made it here today because so many of us don't actually want to go out in the evening. <laughs> you, know? you made it here today. Look, you're not alone. And, and we're all together in this. 
How does someone join that community, join your community? Really simple. I do have a WhatsApp link. I think I might have removed it from my LinkedIn bio, but it's in my website. I'll put it back in my LinkedIn bio and then you can just direct people to it. Okay, we'll pop that in the show notes so people can go and find that. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Oh my goodness, childcare (laughs) and time to recenter. Yeah, because it all comes with having more me time. You know, I don't know what me time looked like until I started my own business and I could actually focus on my work because I have an excuse. But, you know, men don't have to think about that, you know, (laughs) especially those who are working full time. It's like some of us don't even show our neurodivergence if we have a lifestyle that suits it. You know, some of us have like all the time in the world to work on what you love to do and never had to look after children, never had to do that school run, that extra admin, you know, around the running the house. And yeah, you won't even know that you're neurodivergent if the lifestyle completely suits you. So you're having more support and more me time. It's amazing. Beautiful. Thank you. And where can someone find out more about ADHD Girls and you and your work? Go to adhdgirls.co.uk on the website and I've got LinkedIn, Instagram. There are two places I post, Spiny Samantha Hugh and then ADHD underscore girls. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I just know that this conversation will help so many. So thank you again for your time. Cheers, Zoe. So that was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Please do remember to leave a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really does make a massive difference. And if you want to hear more, I would really recommend that you go and check out the episode that we did with Michaela Thomas on self-compassion. Dr. Samantha talked about that a lot, about the importance of giving ourselves compassion and understanding. So that's the Michaela Thomas episode. Just search it wherever you are listening to this one. I'll see you next time.